This episode of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Vitamix. Now, Vitamix is much more than just a blender because a Vitamix can make everything from frozen desserts and smoothies to nut butters and dips. You can use it to grind coffee or spices, and this one really threw me. It can even turn raw ingredients into hot soup in just six minutes. In fact, it's a fantastic tool if you want to get more fruit and veg into your meals, and it's great for plant-based recipes too, making it really easy to eat healthily. A Vitamix is simple to use, and here's the bit that I really love, easy to clean, but it's powerful too, and you can expect fast and professional results, which is one of the reasons why many chefs would not be without one. Vitamix have been around since 1921, which is 100 years of expertise that goes into every blender, and they are completely built to last. All in all, a Vitamix is a great investment, and I can absolutely vouch for the fact that it's a total game changer in the kitchen. To get yours, visit johnlewis.com forward slash Vitamix. Welcome to Life on a Plate, the brand new podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special guests about what food really means to them. We ask about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories, and even their kitchen disasters. And by the end of each episode, you'll know a lot more about them. My name is Jimmy Famarewa, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Alison Okavy, Waitrose food editor and kitchen genius. Alison, I have got something that I want to talk about straight away today, and that is lemon drizzle cake. You sent me a lemon drizzle cake, which I was not expecting at all, and it was incredible. I should probably like build tension as if we're on a baking show and sort of uh, and sort of wait to give you my verdicts. But yeah, thank you so much. That was that was unbelievable. Why lemon drizzle? Do you know what? It has become a bit of a calling card. I've got a bit of reputation for my lemon drizzle cake. <laughs> and, and and what's the great thing about last year in lockdown was was I just started randomly sending them to people, and I just wanted to make them and just pop them That's in the post. That's incredible. That's amazing. I, I really loved it. It was very lemony. And I think you you maybe put that on a card or maybe you said in an email, I hope you like lemony lemon drizzle cakes. And I appreciated that. It was, it was really, really good. And of course, now I'm just going to be angling for more of them. I'm sort of just hoping that, you know, you can just kind of drop some around, start a subscription service. <laughs> Although the guy in the post office, it was so funny because they're frozen and really cold when I post them. Oh, wow. And he, they always go, what's in here? And I go, oh, it's a cake. And the guy knows me now because I've posted so many. Yeah. And he saw your address and he just went, why don't you take it there? It's probably quicker because <laughs> you're just around the corner. Yeah, this is a good point. We live quite close to each other, don't we? So, yeah, I mean, I'll take an oven fresh, sort of warm one okay. next time if you just want to run it around. Um, what is the secret to your lemon drizzle cake? Just before we get off lemon drizzle. Lots of lemons. Oh, okay. How many? I think that one probably, it depends on how juicy they are and what time of year okay. it is. So I think that one probably had about three or four lemons in it. Wow. So it is okay. lots of lemon juice, lots of zest. Yeah. Sometimes it's... a slug of limoncello. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. This sounds great. Um, and I could I, I could talk about this all day, but we should get down to business. And business, this episode, is our conversation 
with Tom Kerridge. Uh, Tom is a acclaimed award-winning chef, originally from Gloucester. He uh, runs and owns the Hand and Flowers in Marlow, uh, restaurants in Manchester and London, and uh, he's got TV shows, cookbooks. He's a real hero of the food world and a real champion of British food. Um, What did you make of Tom? I really liked him. I really got a sense that for him, it wasn't all about money and prestige, but it's all about great food and looking after people. And he really cares about, you know, as he called it, his band of pirates, you know, the people that he works with. (laughs) You know, it's very much like us at work in that partners matter and people matter. So it was just that nice kind of, similarity between us and him I, I think he really balances quite a sort of earthy kind of common touch and he sort of is a real champion of of the everyday and and British and he talked about wanting to cook in pubs because mm. you know it was where he felt comfortable and it's where a lot of people feel comfortable and they have that kind of warm welcome but he marries that with such incredible technique and ability as a chef um Hand and Flowers book came out late last year and it's it's a really, really incredible book and a real celebration of of what he does. And as you say, yeah, he's 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 all about looking after people and all about kind of taking in people into a kitchen atmosphere that didn't feel like they fit in anywhere else. And yeah, he's, he, he was, a, he was a real joy. I, I had high expectations, but he met them. Definitely. He did. He did. And actually we could have carried on talking for hours with him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I get the sense we could just gab on and on about how great he is, but uh, we should just probably crack on with it. Shouldn't we? Let's get on with it. So without further ado, here is our life on a plate conversation with Tom Kerridge. Tom Kerridge, thank you very much for joining us. No worries, thanks for having us. I wondered if we could go back to the beginning. What first kind of set you off on the path to becoming a chef? Was there a specific light bulb moment for you? It was the moment I walked into a kitchen needing a job washing up, to be honest. It was the environment. It was the space. It was the energy that kitchens give. It was that. That was the moment. I didn't. It just got to the point where um, I, I needed work. Um, so I walked into a kitchen and, and that was it. It was it was like I'd found my space, that slightly left field way of life that, you know, removed from society, this kind of like stainless steel box full of full of naughty boys and girls that, you know, it's very much like a pirate ship. And I loved it very much. So it didn't nearly go in another direction. It's always been food. Always been. It's always been food. I mean, there was a little bit in between 16 and 18 where I did a little bit of TV stuff, but it, it really wasn't the thing for me. It was It was always going to be in a kitchen and, and there's never been anything else that I've ever wanted to do or be a part of or be around. And now I think as you get uh-huh. older, the world of food, when I've got the ability where you can run pubs and restaurants and you can speak to cheesemakers and suppliers and people and you're actually out yeah. of the kitchen and you're meeting other equally passionate people about what they do talking to you guys you're passionate about food and restaurants you know and and it's always a lovely thing to do to meet people who just love being in that food arena you talk about being attracted to that kind of band of misfits and this kind of place that people that felt they didn't fit in found this family and kind of belonging i'm interested to know 
what was your thoughts about the actual food at that point? What did it mean to you? Did you see food as this kind of vehicle for expression or was it just about feeding? Was it just about kind of sustenance? No, see, I think food has always been, food when you're a chef is, um, you can get excited by produce and product, but actually that is something that is um, almost secondary in the career of an, particularly in the early time of being a chef from the age of, I don't know, 18 to 28, those first 10 years Mm. are are much more about understanding the job, the profession of being a chef, the keeping your knives sharp, not being, you know, not, not running out of food, not, you know, the, 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 the building blocks of understanding the trade that you're in, the adrenaline fueled services, the, the, um, the fire, the knives, the pain, the tiredness, the, all the things that actually make being a chef, really cool make it really good fun you have to enjoy the stress levels but there's many a food writer there's many a journalist that knows much more about food than chefs but chefs we would know how to cook it we would understand the process so it doesn't matter if you're looking at i don't know slow cooked um lamb shoulders somewhere in in a north african style or then something that's cooked in a clay pot in singapore or something that's done Mm -hmm. i don't know fermentation or pickling processes that are done somewhere in scandinavia as a chef we would have done that or have an understanding of it but the actual the, the actual product or the produce it's probably food writers that have a better knowledge yeah, yeah, maybe sort of broader context because that's the kind of stuff that we focus on. And uh, yeah, but obviously if you put us in a restaurant kitchen, uh, we would crumble and I'm sure you'd probably enjoy watching it. Yeah, you might understand how what you should be doing with a lamb chop, but actually doing it for 70 people um, whilst getting shouted at uh, and someone dropping sauce halfway through service and then, you know, a customer sending something back or someone then turning up late. Those are all the bits that you have to learn as being a chef. It's not. It's all well good just going, yeah, yeah, I know this produce. It's actually, yeah, well done. I'm glad you know it and I get it on the plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling seen. I'm feeling excited suddenly so let's move on you seem to have a very clearly defined style of cooking was that something that you came to by accident did you deliberately want to look at pubs because of their democratic way with food like how did you kind of go on that journey to kind of hitting upon what what seems to be your identified style really yeah it was a place that I felt most comfortable it was a place where I thought you know on a on a day off it's where I'm quite happy to be it's they're, they're incredibly in, they they embrace society and people and they're reflective of um areas and communities and they mean so much and you know everybody's welcoming and in a pub you can walk into any country pub anywhere up and down in the country and get a, a, a pint and a warm smile and something nice to eat. and it doesn't matter they, they, it really doesn't matter your economic background your education your race your color your sexuality your it really doesn't matter you can go into pubs and they're welcoming and that that's the most important thing about pubs whereas sometimes restaurants can feel a little bit um i suppose sterile perhaps clinical uh, perhaps they can lack heart and soul and and that's one thing that pubs have in abundance is heart and soul things that you did kind of during the first lockdown was you took a stand in terms of no shows and 
I think it was uh, Kerridge's Bar and Grill in um, London. And uh, it was at the time when restaurants had just reopened. It was all very tentative and people were kind of fearfully stepping back in. You called out some people that hadn't showed up for their table and there was this huge response. Were you expecting that response? What was it like after the fact of that? Because it kind of created this whole national debate. It did. It was massive. So I was sat there and I was reading the service report for Kerridge's Bar and Grill and we had 100 people booked and it was the second Saturday of being allowed to be open. So you go, this is, you know, it's great, 100 people booked. It should normally be doing 180. So it's almost 50% down and you go, okay. But we've kind of structured, we understand what the bookings are and we made a point of going, okay. But we had something like 26 people, no show. You know, if you take that away from your infrastructure, from the food that you've bought, from, you know, the, 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 the staff that you've put in place and everything that goes in and a quarter of people don't turn up, that's, that's all the profit. That, that's a, I mean, not that you're making any profit anyway this year, but any opportunity opportunity to make any small margin it's completely disappeared you, you're now losing money there's no point in being open because these people haven't turned up and it's not the fact that they haven't turned up the issue is the fact that they haven't called to say they're not coming so you go because if they tell you they're not coming that's okay great we can resell those tables that's no you sit there with a the table waiting for someone to turn up and they just no show so the shout out that I made, yeah, you, you're right. And it and it turns out that it happened to so many people within hospitality that first weekend. I mean, it obviously hit a, a big nerve and, and it got picked up national um, following and a lot of people talked about it for a couple of weeks, which was great because actually what I did do now or throughout the, re- the remainder of the summer prior to now getting to lockdown, we had very, very little in the way of no-shows and lots of other people had very little. I think it made people's conscious feel oh my God, yeah, of course I've got to tell people no. I've got to let them know. I think, so from that point of view, it was most definitely worth it. You know, I, I think it, it it got it out there. It, it made people address it and it made pe- members of the general public much more aware of actually the decisions they make will affect other people's lives and livelihoods. So there's much more to it than just going out for steak and chips now. There is actually the decision if I do or don't go will affect somebody who I may never have met before will affect their life. And that's and and I think for that point of view, it's most definitely the right thing to do, throw it out there. And also, just touching on the fact that Hand and Flowers book, which uh, came out towards the end of last year, it feels like a bit of a full circle journey for you. Was that what it felt like from your point of view, that it was kind of something that you'd long wanted to do? It's 15 years since you took over the pub. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So 15 years, 2005, we opened and then it got to the point where it was actually the first book deal that we signed. We were going to do a single book. We're going to do a kind of like a Hand of Flowers pub cookbook. But what actually happened is, you know, a great British menu came along. I I did all right in that. Um, So we kind of shelved the Hand of Flowers cookbook and then another, the series did well. And then we asked to do another one. So we did a second series and another book and a different, and it kind of kept getting pushed back. And we went on this journey of, um, I think, of just being um, cooking great food and in the pub and uh, and then being able to find ourselves with a voice you know writing bits and bobs for newspapers and uh, and doing books and appearing on television was something that was really really cool so the recipes that you wrote was very very different they were connecting to people to be able to cook at home which is very different to the dishes that you cook at the hand of flowers and then I suppose over that period of time you know the hand of flowers now 15 years down the line and the way that we've grown and matured as a business and the way that the food is developed and and changed and become more uh, 
I suppose, very incredibly well focused, but a little more complex. You then kind of, it's, it's now more, it's much more of a reflective book and it represents, it's, it's every exact recipe that we cook at the Hand of Flowers or have cooked at the Hand of Flowers. And um, But the kind of the way that the book is laid out is very much a case of it being that you can break it all down. You can pinch the apple puree from something if you want to make the best apple sauce or a simple twill or, you know, a chocolate mousse or whatever. Those, those kind of recipes are there. But when you construct the whole dishes together, it kind of takes you into that two-star level. And it's so it's trying to be – but it's allowed – the 15 years down the line has allowed this book to be way better than it was ever going to be because it's now much more of a reflective journey of the people that have been on it on the pub. It's kind of like a, a slight look back in, in history of, you know, the develop of, development of the business. Before you came, Jimmy and I were talking about how, how good the recipes are, having got them all broken down. It makes it so much more achievable for people to cook at home. And I think also during lockdown, people's cooking abilities also it just improved and people are more ambitious about what they'll take on. So there's some really great recipes in, in there that I've got my arm doing when I've got a spare weekend. Oh, amazing. Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, the, the, you're right. Lockdown has served uh, um, many, many things, um, painful, disruptive, heartbreaking, devastating. However, you know, there has been more time to be spent with family. There has been more opportunity to cook. There's been more opportunity to read. There's been more opportunity to do certain things that you'll quite often not be a part of or that your lives are too busy that, you know, to do even simple cookery. Quite often people, you know, if you're not getting in until nine or 10 o'clock at night because you've been super busy, or then you socialise with friends or whatever. The last thing you do is is get home and cook. So it's been great for that point of view in terms of people getting into kitchens and having a go at stuff and experimenting. Having a bit more time to play around with food has been, you know, has been one of the positives to take out of this. I was wondering about your your philosophy with food and your kind of tastes. How have they kind of evolved over the years? And obviously, change of lifestyle has been a huge part of your personal journey and the books that you've published and the shows that you've done um what would what would sort of young tom that was first kind of getting taken to those pubs and growing up in gloucestershire what did he think of as comfort food and that you know the height of luxury and what do you think of now how has your how has your food taste changed well, I, I mean, I, I grew up as, from a single parent family in in Gloucester. My mum had two jobs. I went to an all boys comprehensive school in the middle of free council estate. So it was quite a. It was a. It was a great. So luxury of eating out and food is. It was very, very. Um, well, it was few and far between. But I, it wasn't because it, it's just something a world that I'd never known or experienced. So you know, going to a, a Bernie Inn when I was little, you know, as a as a birthday celebration was always something that was seen as luxury or exciting or you know that moment of going out was 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 absolutely brilliant but for me i suppose the comfort food space is, is, is always going to be like your mum's sunday lunch and everyone will say that their mum's sunday lunch is the best but yeah but it would be my mum's sunday lunch was great you know and you know, i'd play rugby on a sunday and then um come back to come back to the house and quite often i bring you know three or four friends, waifs and strays from the rugby pitch. so you know my background is no is very very 
was it, it's it's very very normal for where I grew up. There was a lot, loads of kids with you know grew up with single parents. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a such a strange thing. You know, it, it, I was I was no different to anybody else. But you know, the one thing that my mum did was always good at hospitality, and she would never. She was never judgmental of any of, of the other kids, you know, whether they were the naughtiest boys in school or whether they were, you know, whose parents were, you know, missing in action or whatever. You know, they, my mum would always be like, kids are welcome, like, no worries. She'd always do enough roast potatoes and someone would turn up. There'd always be something there for them. So it was always, yeah, the comfort food was always my mum's Sunday lunch, definitely. And what's it now? What would you say the comfort food is now? Is it still Sunday lunch at home with your son? Or? Yeah, it, it is something that it, it's, it, it's something that is funny. I bumped into a friend who's um, um, uh, uh, works in the media and uh, in Marlow the other last Sunday, and he was coming. Uh, he was coming over Marlow Bridge as I was going the other way into the park with my my little man, and he was coming back with his kids on the on their bikes, and it was just like, well, where are you off to now? And he said, I'm just I'm just going home to make my house smell of Sundays. So like doing those roast potatoes and doing, and you just go, I love the idea of that. That sentence just made me go, yeah. So so you're right. So that sense of luxury, putting something in the oven that makes the house smell of something delicious. That's that's the height of luxury. And it could be, I don't know, it could be a baked cake or it could be a, 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 a the Sunday lunch. But for me, it's always something like a slow roast shoulder of lamb or a casserole or something like that. That just that those just kind of something that feels that you as you walk through the door, you fall into those flavors, and it's just those are the things that yeah that's comfort food that's something that's special what about your son do you cook with him does he um is he in the kitchen with you yeah, he does like cooking. He's, he is. He is. He'll be five next month. But it, and and like me, he's got quite a short attention span. <laughs> so we, if we if we're going to cook, he does something quick. He's got to be. But he's pretty good at cooking an omelet. He's all right at that. He cooks. Um, he's he's he, he likes cracking eggs. He's probably, he's all right at making scrambled eggs. He's quite good at having a go at making cakes. He doesn't mind that. But yeah, he's 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 all right at food. He's not bad. He's pretty he's pretty poor with vegetables. But I don't think there's many five year olds that suddenly go. Oh yeah, I'd love some kale. You know, most of he's 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 into he loves fresh fish, absolutely loves it. Um, but like most kids, he likes beige. You know, kind of like brown, brown and crispy, or brown and soft. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You learn that lesson early, where you kind of try to introduce them to loads of stuff, and you maybe kind of spend a lot of time cooking something, and they just kind of shove it to the other side of the table, and you just think, okay. Never again. Uh, mate, I tell you what, we grew. This is the longest pudding we ever made. We grew a pumpkin, right? So it took us months. We grew a pumpkin two Sundays ago. We uh, made, uh, baked it. We roasted it. We um, pureed it and went through the whole process. We made it into pumpkin pie, like rolled the pastry, did the whole thing, like everything about it. Baked the whole lot. Absolutely, like it was. It was. It was lovely, right? Took a slice of it. He wanted it with some vanilla ice cream. He had the vanilla ice cream. Didn't want the pumpkin i mean that thing took like four months to make <laughs> like for, it's like just not interested in it just wanted the, just wanted the vanilla ice cream that came out of a tub <laughs> yeah kids kids are the harshest critics of all um i wondered as well about food's capacity to kind of give back and sort of have a positive impact on people's lives and you talked a little bit about meals from Marlowe. can you tell us a bit about that i mean speaking in the past tense because when this comes out it will have been gone but could you kind of dig into that a little bit more for us and what you did and 
the process of putting it together? Yeah, well, it actually still exists. We set up, there, there was a whole pro- process right at the beginning of, of that first lockdown of people worrying about the NHS and what was going on. And we were all clapping <clears> on a Thursday night. And there was a, a little tweet put out from one of the one of the local hospitals in Slough saying that their guys are working incredibly hard, that, um, you know, they're doing 18 hour shifts. And they're, you know, they, when they go into the supermarkets, 24 hour supermarket, mm-hmm. that there's no food left. There's nothing there that, that, that they need. All the staples have gone and they're eating out of vending machines. So it was like, okay, so look, what can we do here? Can we do something special? We've got a load of furloughed staff. We've got a great big unit that works for um, outside catering that obviously we're not doing any. Um, mm-hmm. Is there something we could do? So we kind of put a little shout out um, and set up a GoFundMe page. I set it up with um, a guy that works in marketing and somebody else that I, I, we, I run the pub in the park festival with. And we just went, right, well, let's see if we can create a bit of a buzz and get some names together and see if we can get so build a bit of money together to see if we can do a few meals and within the first weekend of launching it we just said right this is what we're going to do it raised seventy five thousand pounds which was just amazing and by the end of it we'd raised over one hundred and eighty thousand pounds and we'd fed um over eighty thousand meals to frontline nhs in in both slough maidenhead um high wickham and over in oxford as well so the four big hospitals in, in and around our area but then also the vulnerable and the needy through a link foundation into um people that needed it and and it made such a difference as well that we were dropping off at the church here um, in Marlow and they were taking it to the guys um, that needed it in the areas here. And that community drive was, was massive. You touched on it with the pumpkin pie, but kind of what kind of things have you been cooking? Have you been... Have you been working on stuff or have you just been kind of cooking as an escape? What have you been getting into throughout this period? What have you been sort of enjoying dabbling with? It's just been nice to be able to have a bit of that little bit of extra time for making stews and and, and minced dishes like, you know, chilies and bolognese sauces and just things that just take that little bit longer. And apart from growing your pumpkin, have you been growing anything else out in the back garden or? No, no, I'm not. I'm not the gardener. I've got to be honest. I'm not very good. <laughs> no, it, it's not. It's not. It's not really my thing. I haven't got the. I haven't got the time for it. Pumpkin's quite easy. Basically, stuck it in the ground and waited. And was, <laughs> it, was it just one pumpkin seed you planted, or was it you've got a whole garden full of pumpkins? No, it was a plant, and we only got one pumpkin from it. So I'm not quite sure how that works. I don't know how many you're supposed <laughs> to get off it, but you know, it, for it, 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 it was about all I could manage. That's the only green fingers I've got. One pumpkin. Mind you, you probably did yourself a favour just by one pumpkin because they are a bit like triffids that just take over the whole, the whole back space with the way they kind of grow out. Well, if anybody needs to grow small amounts of pumpkins really badly, they should just ask my. I might write that might be my next my next book, <laughs> how to grow pumpkins badly. <laughs> how to get one from uh, but, yeah. make, but make an amazing pumpkin pie that you'll like be somewhere yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have any midweek recipes that are a go-to that might please the three of you yeah we omelets are a big thing in our house we, we you know we're both he loves the protein he loves the eggs I, I, and they're very good um 
they're very good staples in the house because they don't take long to cook. But you can also do so much with them. You can take, you can go to Spain or the Spanish style tortilla. You can just do like yeah. a, you can just do like a full English kind of omelet style thing, or you can do, you know, it, it's a way of using up stuff that's in the fridge. You know, we all have bits of mm-hmm. what, like that one slice of ham or that little, bit, you know, <laughs> or those two tomatoes or that. You know, we're all that go. Okay, well, what should I? And you kind of track it together as a big flavor so omelets cover it with sriracha sauce it's delicious it's an easy it's an easy thing to do yeah. midweek teas they're, they're super quick super simple super easy so you put the sriracha on your omelets to to zhuzh it up have you got any other essential kitchen ingredients that are kind of go-to's that you could recommend yeah i mean they're always kind of like big flavor enhancers i'm a big fan of english mustard coleman's english mustard is like the best thing Mm. ever i love um things like gherkins and capers i love that acidity level that Mm. you can throw into dishes and that just bring things to life those sort of things are great smoked paprika cracked black pepper you know all of those kind of like added flavor like punches that are really yeah. hard that don't necessarily sit in a dish now that you don't base a dish around english mustard you don't base a dish necessarily around gherkins or crap black pepper but when you throw them into dishes they suddenly take them to another space That's another fun. dimension exactly that is um so those are though I, I do like those as store cupboard kind of ingredients so i can't remember then if you said about it being something that you find calming and i know that you have obviously been on this transformational journey and you've talked brilliantly and really relatably about lifestyle changes and things like that that you've brought in how have you managed to sort of recreate that buzz is it is it exercise is it kind of something else like how do you sort of get that little escape it's an active mind it's it's keeping doing stuff to the point where i think i can't get it quite done in time and i quite enjoy that and then yeah on top of that i do enjoy doing stuff in the gym i doing stuff you know uh, um yeah, I, I do. I do enjoy trying to push myself to to limits, and I do keep thinking at some point I'm just going to go. Now nah, I don't want to do any of it anymore. But I, d- I don't know mm. when that will be. But that is interesting. So you don't really seek the quiet solitude. You like the sort of hustle and the yeah the kind of pressure of it really yeah i love a bit of chaos i that's a bit (laughs) that's a big thing that i miss from drinking like i miss Mm. that bit i don't miss the fallout from it but i miss that kind of self-indulged chaos so trying to create it a little bit by through workload or saying yes to stuff that perhaps we shouldn't i don't mind at all i was wondering in terms of kind of kitchen culture and it being quite full tilt and you know working quite hard and you know being sort of quite hard charging i know you've spoken in the past about marco pierre white's um book being quite a formative one for you so do you think that kitchen culture will change i think it already is to a point i think um the world of instagram and social media makes a big big difference to young chefs coming into the industry because they you know they can see dishes around the world there and then right now you can see what someone's doing alex atala's doing in brazil or you can see what an amazing three-star chef is doing in tokyo or somebody's doing amazing in scandinavia or you know you can go and i think that creates an environment where um uh, kitchens are full of people now that want experiences and travel with food and understanding and 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 kind of a culture that is much more um it's enriching about it's a global culture rather than just this insular four walls like being in a submarine kind of that's where it is it's now much more 
outward looking, which is exciting and great for that point of view. I think the hours is something that everybody in the industry is always looking at how we can kind of bring that down. Um, but essentially, the, the work is, you know, the busiest times are in the evening. The, the the busiest points of it are the weekends, you know. So it is still going to be seen as from the outside as a slightly antisocial world to be in however we know once we're in it it's the most sociable world to be in it's the most amazing incredible eclectic all right you might have to work saturday night but you still know where to go saturday night at one o'clock in the morning and you say and you still know the best barman that will serve you the best drink and the the guys that will get you in through the back door with no issue you know that 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 lifestyle is exceptionally amazing it's brilliant that slightly left field way of life is fantastic and i do think there is part of the reason why people love being a chef is not about the food. It is about the energy that you get from being in kitchens, the excitement, the adrenaline, the, the, um, the push, the busyness, the, the, the little bit of fear of not being ready for lunch service, that little bit of, you know, going, oh my God, we're opening 15 minutes and the fish hasn't arrived yet. All of those kind of bits that it, they create an excitement in the day, the stress levels, are, are, are great. If you're a person that thrives off stress levels, if they make you excited, if you, you like the challenge of it, that's what being a chef is about. It's not just about creating a nice pumpkin pie with your son. All right. That's someone who's a good domestic cook. The difference between that and someone who loves being the, the best chefs aren't always necessarily the best cooks. They're the best people that love that environment. And that's, you know, that will, that will never change because that is the job. You know, we have to be ready for lunch and dinner and you are under pressure and that is what makes the job exciting. But there is a, there is, has been over the last 20 years, a most definitive change from it being aggressive to being adrenaline fueled. And they're two, they're two slightly different maneuvers, but it still needs to stay adrenaline fueled because otherwise it's it's not about being a chef then you'll just become a, a cook and and it can't operate like that anyway it has to operate under those pressure levels because that's what restaurants are you know when you're doing 180 people on a saturday night you can't just you can't just stroll through that like there's nothing happening that's that's busy and that's exciting and that's a buzz and energy and noise and you know another check on and the sound of the machine going and pans being put on the stove and sort of plate being dropped in the background all those things but all those things that create energy and excitement and stuff that's going wrong that you've got to solve there and then decision making that's really sharp and quick and all of that sort of stuff is that's what makes being in the hospitality industry super exciting well it goes back to what you were first talking about and pubs and that kind of social connection and those unique moments that I feel we're all yearning for and all craving and hoping we'll be back in some form soon and Thank you so much for your time, Tom. And until then, you know, you've kind of serviced people with, with you know, recipes and these other businesses and stuff and the things you're doing is really great. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers, Jimmy. Cheers, Alison. Lovely to see you. listening to Life on a Plate with Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavi, and to our guest, Tom Kerridge. To learn more about the series, please go to www.waitrose.com forward slash podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.